Hi, welcome to Aviation Now by Aviation Zero. I'm delighted to be chatting with Flight Ops Weights Engineer, Phil Cam. A very good morning, Phil. How are you getting on today? Uh, very good morning to you, David. Um, I'm well. I'm currently in my living room and uh, uh, looking out at um, a somewhat uh, grey um, October morning, sadly. Um, I was hoping it was going to be bright sunshine, so I'm hoping that will uh, improve a bit. But, but other than that, uh, yeah, uh, really good at the moment. Thank you. But you're, you're jumping the gun, Phil. You know that I'm supposed to ask you, where on planet Earth are you at this moment in time? And then what I'll say is after that, I'll say, OK, Phil, you're in you're in Hawaii or Phil, you're in, <laughs> you're in Barbados or you're in in the Maldives. So where are you, Phil, right now? Well, I'm in my living room, so oh. that's that's first clue. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I'm actually in a place uh, that which is just as exciting and just as exotic as you know, the place like Barbados, uh, the Maldives, and uh, and uh, anywhere else uh, that I can think of in the Mediterranean region that I've been to. Uh, I'm actually in uh, a town uh, called uh, Clevedon, so you know the place to be. Um, Sounds very exotic. Uh, Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Costadel Cleveton, I think, oh, or a nice. if you know Cleveton, if you like to uh, go down that way. We are about 10 miles away from the city of Bristol, and uh, it's a coastal um, town. Uh, we've got a, uh, a small seafront. It's not a beach um, seafront, it's, it's a stone seafront. Right. We are, so it's, it's on the coast of the Bristol Channel, or where it meets the uh, Severn Estuary. You can look across to the Welsh coastline, so you can see Cardiff port and uh, a small town of Penarth on the Welsh side and on a clear day you can actually see as far down towards the Devon uh, coast the Exmoor uh, coast as well. Oh very nice. Uh, so and yeah, do you have a cool um, view Phil I mean right now if you're looking out your window I mean do you have a nice heated indoor swimming pool? Um, I haven't unfortunately Unless uh, uh, unless the bath counts as, as an indoor swimming pool but well, um, not, unfortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> Does it have bubbles? Uh, it does occasionally, yes, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Move on from there uh, as quickly as, as possible. So, <laughs> tell the listeners a little bit about your background. Uh, okay, well, um, I've actually grown up um, here in uh, the west of England my whole life, actually. Um, I haven't um, uh, moved around um, the country or indeed the world um, as much as um, friends that uh, um, who I've known over the past uh, sort of like 20 uh, plus years have done so. So it's very difficult to take the West Country out of the West Country um, boy, as they say. One of four uh, boys. So what I do uh, feel sorry now for my mother having to put up with uh, four children uh, who were in a range between the ages, um, you know, like a, like a four-year age gap uh, between you know, between us all. Loud uh, sort of shouting when uh, we're as brothers do, we always annoy each other. You know, right. you know, know we're growing up, but we get on really well, actually. So, um, so are you the favourite? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was always the the uh, the, the one with the, the halo always above the head, sort of thing. Um, I think, but uh, but no, yeah. So went to school locally, and so still a few, a few friends who have known from school who are still around here. Uh, my dad, uh, he. It's actually from the area he uh, lives. Well, sorry, yeah, he lives in Clevedon. So he uh, is actually from Bristol. So he was born and bred in Bristol, uh, along with uh, his uh, three other brothers. And uh, my mum is actually a little bit more local. She actually grew up in a town just uh, a few miles away from here. Although my uh, my dad's got a passion for aviation, but he's actually worked in the the car industry. 
So I think a lot of people tend to assume that because you know, um, my dad has uh, you know, knows about cars, that I somehow know everything about cars as well. That's not the case. Um, I can just about manage to uh, work out how to check the oil, water, and uh, the uh, tire pressure levels. Um, so, so yeah, so that tells you how much of uh, of, uh, a mechanic, of a mechanic I am in case uh, a car breaks down uh, just outside you know, my place or if I've uh, got to like, have a hire car at some point. I've also a uh, family who live within like a 15-mile radius um, of uh, Cleveson, so very much you know, predominantly Bristol, um, with the exception I've got... Um, a cousin who lives in London and uh, another cousin who lives just a little bit further away um, over in Australia. What part so, of Australia, Phil? Uh, he lives in uh, Melbourne, which is, um, I've, I've been there. I went to see him about, uh, it's a good, ooh, probably about a good 14 years ago, I think now. Very nice um, city, actually. It's, I went there in uh, the end of January, which was, I think, about the same time they celebrate Australia Day. Right. I remember, but yeah, really nice um, city, uh, very uh, cosmopolitan. Uh, I love the way that they have um, incorporated uh, new architecture in with the old um, architecture, so a lot of the uh, Victorian era style buildings. The, the funny thing that um, that I was told by my cousin because he asked me, um, "Have I actually been to Sydney?" And I said, well, you know, I flew into Sydney, then got a connecting flight to come down to Melbourne. So all I saw of Sydney was basically the airport and the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera Houses were you know, departing from um, the airport to come down to Melbourne. And he said to me straight away, that's all you need to see of it. That's, that's, there's nothing else to see. Of course, he's saying this as um, his, his uh, friend who, um, who, who, who I met while I was out there, He's actually from Sydney, and you then realise that there's quite a rivalry between the two cities. Right. Um, so, so he's he's from a scene that no, no, there's a lot more to see in Sydney than there is than, than what you're saying. And uh, my cousin said, no, no, just those two things, and that's it. So there's quite a bit of rivalry, and um, that's where I began to realise why um, Canberra was uh, picked as the capital of Australia because um, it's sort of like the middle road you know, between the two rivals. Um, but uh, but no, it was, uh, it, it was it was it was very good to be there, and um, even more good that um, my cousin at the time he lived uh, about two or three blocks away from where they film uh, the uh, Australian soap opera uh, uh, Neighbours. Yes, everybody's favourite. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I had Arlene to. Arlene and Scott. Mm-hmm. That's. Well, yes, yeah, yeah, and uh, and uh, Mrs. Mangle, Mr. Bishop. Uh, oh, which, yes. Well, I mean, they've. Uh, <laughs> the <laughs> Oh yeah, the Ramses. Yeah, um, in fact, it's, it's, it's not even called Ramsey Street. To my shock and horror, it was. Um, I think it's called Pen Oak Avenue. I think it's or something what? like that. You mean they lied? Oh, no. They, they lied about it. You know, you know, it's like you know, Coronation Street's Coronation Street, but you know, this place isn't you no, know, isn't Ramsey Street. I was, I was really shocked. Um, That's like telling but, me that just for men doesn't make your hair go darker. Oh, does it not? Terrible advertising. <laughs> I know. I think I have to write a very strongly worded letter to uh, to the uh, production company now. Yeah. Um, oh, but that was great. It was, um, I, I had to see the obligatory you know, uh, thing and uh, and uh, go and uh, see the street. And uh, quite surprised at how how small it is um, compared to what you see on the screen. When I've seen like, the panoramic shot, it makes it look a lot wider. Um, uh, street as it actually is, or a cul de sac space is is, is is more what it is. But it was still good to go around just to see um, what it was a bit like. And it was just this quiet, you know, suburb, you know, um, you know, there was no one outside or anything like that. It was a Sunday afternoon. 
I just felt really weird sort of being around it, thinking that there's no um, no filming activity. And um, they said, well, they tend to come here on the week on on the weekday, so they can allow the residents to have their weekends at least. So, um, but I thought that show's been going for what about thirty odd years now, must be. So, oh um, yeah, it was like um, every was it every was it one of these the show twice a day? I think it was on BBC, wasn't it? It was. They did, yeah. Um, one o'clock I, and I, then five o'clock or six o'clock or something. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah, I remember those, and um, I've not watched it for a very, very long time now, and um, so I suspect that there's probably no one in the uh, in the soap opera who actually um, asked it around now. So, uh, but uh, but there we go. We have Netflix on that stuff these days. So uh, yeah. It all, it all it all helps. So tell our listeners then, why did, when did you first fall in love with aviation? So what was it that kind of went, ooh, okay, I can't, this is what I want to do? Well, this is where I have to lay the blame squarely at my dad. So as I mentioned before, he he uh, he works um, in the uh, car industry. Um, he has the same business. Um, he's never been involved in the aviation industry, but he has got a passion for um, aircraft. I think it stemmed from... Uh, he went to a um, air show when he was uh, you know, younger, and uh, I was even younger. I, I wasn't even born then. Um, <laughs> back in the uh, back in the fifties, uh, uh, early sixties, I, I think it was. And um, he was at an air show at uh, at uh, Staverton Airfield, which is just outside of um, Gloucester, um, they, uh, to the just actually a few miles to the east of uh, no, sorry, to the west of Cheltenham. Sorry. Uh, which is where I do my my uh, my uh, flying lessons these days. He saw a, uh, a Hawker Hunter, um, which was the you know, jet fighter at the time, doing a display and doing a high speed fly past. He got hooked from that moment onwards. So as he was growing up, he started to go to quite a few air shows that were around the local area. And even not long after I was born, we were going around to aircraft museums and, uh, you know, going to air shows when it came to the summertime. So that's how I got hooked, really. Um, it was just fascinating to see something that's actually in the sky and it wasn't a bird um, and it wasn't Superman. <laughs> and um, just seeing these, these, I mean, when you're a small kid, everything looks gigantic. You know, even like a, like a Cessna or a Piper looks gigantic. But at the time when you had such a very, a, you know, sort of a varying amount of um, aircraft types, particularly in military service, you know, and a lot of large aircraft were still you know, um, around at the time, and it, it was just fascinating. And uh, we, I was always playing with you know, with uh, little you know, toy planes you know, growing up, and uh, I used to have, and some uh, people might actually remember these the old matchbox uh diecaster toys oh yeah uh, probably about maybe about uh, about well about 10 centimeters if that long and you can get like various sites of airliners or like, uh, military airplanes and i had one of the lightning i remember playing with that one to my heart's content no when i was uh, a little kid when i went to an air show not far from here yeovil which is in somerset so it's about an hour's drive away from here um it's where the fleet aero museum is and that was where I had my first um, recollections of seeing a RAF Lightning um, actually displaying. And uh, when I saw it on the other side of the airfield, they were getting ready to take off a four. And I saw it and I actually had my, my toy Lightning with me at the time and sort of looking at the toy, looking at the aeroplane, thinking, <gasps> you know, wow. this is my aeroplane, you know, wow. excited to see it. 
Um, and then I sort of changed my mind when the, uh, when the engine spooled up and uh, it uh, then went blasting down the runway, making a heck of a noise. And that frightened the living daylights out of me. Um, it's one thing that did actually put me off um, aircraft a little bit was the amount of noise. But over time, it began to make, just think, well, that's part and parcel of it. That's, they, that's, that's, that's what they are. Um, but was it like a Tom it, Cruise moment that you actually seen it up front? And uh, it was like a... It was like a Tom Cruise moment, and if you know, if anything, you know, the Lightning, you know, better than the Tomcat. I should have said that now. I've probably upset a lot of the Tomcat. I've no, top don't, don't say that. <laughs> don't Top Gun. You're ruining it now. <laughs> no, no, it's it is. I have to admit, well, it is one of my favourite films, and for you know, obviously, you know, have got anything that's got an aircraft in it, it's going to be a favourite film. Apart from the airport, you know, um, series films of the 1970s, which were just an awful, um, even though. Even though they, a few years after they were released, I can't believe people actually thought they were, would be any good, but there we go. Um, so, yeah, so I'm um, going to the air shows and, um, you know, and always, you know, I think it just seemed to be like tradition. Every time I went to an air show, I would always you know, um, get a model airplane to build. Or when I say you no know, to build, I mean, my dad would build it for me. Um, right. And uh, <laughs> You always made you always made a better job of doing it than I would, um, especially when it came to like trying to paint the livery. I tried to do it once; when I was like f- five, six years old, and um, it didn't work out very well. So my dad had to sand it all down and then start it all over again. Um, <laughs> so that's how the, that, that's how the that's how the interest got in. And of course, when we then started to we would go out to the local airport as well to watch uh, the aircraft coming in and out. Uh, so you see uh, mainly the. Airbus and the Boeing aircraft of, of that day. So like the Airbus A300, A310, or the uh, 737 um, flying in and out, uh, taking passengers to the um, far-flung destinations of the Mediterranean. And I always wondered what it would be like to actually fly on a aircraft and uh, thinking that it's not going to happen you know, for a long, long time. And um, I remember when we did our first um, holiday abroad and it ended up, you know, we had to, they fly. Um, and we flew to uh, Palma de Mallorca. Very nice. Uh, and um, it was with uh, Britannia Airways. Uh, and it was on a uh, Boeing. Britannia, is the Britannia Tui now, is it? It, it is Tui now, yeah. It, yeah. it had a few yeah. different names. It's, it's it had Britannia, then it became Thompson Fly for a while. And now it's uh, Tui, or um, a friend of mine from, uh, from from my flyby days. He used to call it Chewy, Chewy. as in no Chewbacca. <laughs> so, um, and he said, "I thought it's always." I, he, he always said to me, "Isn't that what it's always pronounced as?" I said, "No, it, it's it, it's Tui," um, but it gave, it gave us a laugh all the time. So, um, yeah, it, it was in for Britannia, and uh, it was on the uh, the Boeing seven three seven two hundred. So with the two with the turbojets um, on it. And in fact, actually, uh, not long ago, um, I was having a bit of a um, tidy up and actually come across a postcard that, uh, that my mum sent back to my uh, grandparents from that holiday. And um, so it's actually quite funny. Uh, they actually saw, they, they see that and, and uh, reading what um, we were doing on the holiday, I thought, oh, yeah, I remember doing that, you know, going up into the mountains and so forth. The, the only sad part of it was that um, the first flight uh, was on a was on a Boeing aeroplane, and I know that's going to be heresy. No, nothing yes. to say. How dare um, you? How dare I know, you? I know, but uh, it's. <laughs> I just felt that yeah, it's the seven three seven. It's like yeah, not not an aeroplane for me. I would have you know, um, I'm happy. I I do have to. I do like the seven five seven and the triple seven. Um, yes. I do think that they are. 
I think they are exceptions really. Um, the 747 Scott is a very powerful um, airplane. To me, it's the Boeing's equivalent of what uh, the VC-10 would have been, a very powerful airplane to do what it does you know, for hot and high conditions. They're very sexy looking as well, aren't they? As an airplane, very sexy. I mean, it's kind of like, as you said there, I mean, no disrespect to Boeing here or the old Mm. 737-200s, but they've seemed to kind of, as as the technology has advanced and the designs have changed, they they look more sexier now. Even the 787, I have to say, looks looks quite a nice airplane. It's it's interesting because... with, with the 757, I remember when uh, I was working for Bryman and uh, one of the first officers had been offered a position with uh, air tours, as it was then, uh, to fly the 757. And uh, when he when he asked our, um, our, our flight operations manager about it, and uh, the manager just said to him, if you um, go on the 757, then you have got a license for life. Um, you know, because so it's, it's also a very respected airplane you know, to get a, a type rating on. And um, I've flown on the airplane uh, with British Airways, and it is a really nice airplane in terms of the way, just as I said, because of the performance side of it. Um, I have seen the Royal New Zealand Air Force 757 when it's come to the UK, when it's um, done uh, some flying displays at, uh, at, at a couple of air shows. And they do um, throw the airplane around quite a bit. So it's actually quite interesting to actually see um, you know, large aircraft being you know, be, being manoeuvred a little bit more than you would normally see them flying out of airports. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why I've always enjoyed going to the Farnborough air shows whenever I could to see the Airbus aircraft do that. Um, for, for a while, you'd only see the Airbus um, aircraft actually doing flying displays. And uh, I remember seeing the A380 and the A340-600 where they would do their, their slow fly pass and it was like down to about 100 knots and it was just incredible you know, to see yes. they, these behemoths going so slowly and thinking that's, it's, it's going to fall out of the sky surely but um, uh, but yeah just impressive with the way that technology has evolved um, to, to get these aircraft to do these things which previous generation would find they could probably do, but it would just be very, very difficult to, 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 to still handle the airplane if you didn't have the fly-by-wire systems that we have today as standard, really. So tell us then, Phil, um, I know we mentioned this previously, but with regards to Concord, what was the story you had with, with Concord? We're going to be very jealous now about this story, but tell us anyway. Okay, well, it's um, it's an airplane which is um, it, it is linked to the family, Um and as far as my my granddad from my dad's side, he worked at uh, Rolls Royce or Bristol Sidley, as it, it it was originally called, uh, before they um, uh, took over um, Bristol Sidley in the sixties. Um, he worked in the engine development, and the first jet engine that he worked on with Bristol was the Pegasus engine, which was uh, used to power the uh, eventually to power the um, Harrier um, jump jet, and. Uh, based at um, Patchway, which is just across the road from Filton Airfield near Bristol. Um, so you never to be any Bristol built aircraft would have a Bristol, no, Sidley built engine. And uh, he had uh, uh, helped out on the, on the engine development uh, for the uh, Olympus engine, which powered the, um, the Vulcan and uh, the TSR2 or the, the, Ophel, the ill-fated TSR2 really. And obviously it was then used to power Concorde. So uh, 
I then have a uncle who works for British Aircraft Corporation as an electrician. So he worked on the aircraft as well during its uh, late development. So that's where I've got a, a family linkage to it. And then my own story of it is that um, I've, I love the aircraft, um, you know, when I was a small child, after seeing the Lightning um, and seeing you know, Concorde, that was my next favourite. And it is now my favourite aircraft you know, entirely. Um, it's just a very beautiful, you know, um, streamlined shape. Um, and uh, but it's not it's all scientific are you oh sorry yeah sorry about that yeah so uh, beautiful yeah, on a sake <laughs> I've digressed face. sorry continue sorry I'll talk to you back to Concord you wait for me to say this um, so um, but uh, and yeah again I, I see the aircraft at, at air shows um, uh, the airplane was predominantly based at Heathrow, so you didn't see it that often, unless I would peer up into the sky. And because the route that it takes to go to New York, it would um, it would fly overhead um, the Bristol area to go out to the Bristol Channel, where then do its acceleration to the supersonic flight. So about eleven o'clock in the morning, every single day, you know, you'd hear this this roar in the sky, and you looked up and you could see Concorde was flying overhead about thirty thousand feet. Um, and on its way to go out uh, you know, to uh, America. And I always wondered that would be, it'd be great to be able to do that one day. But even at that time, it, I, I was told that it was expensive to go on the flight. So I thought, well, okay, that's, it's not going to happen. I just have to keep dreaming. Um, but um, but it, it has happened. Um, I've, I've been very lucky. I've, I've, I've flown on the aircraft uh, three times. Um, only one of those times was supersonic. Um, but the first time I flew on the aircraft was when I was about was, uh, five years old. And, um, you know, being woken up um, very early in the morning by my mum and uh, being carried out to our VW camper van, uh, still in my uh, pyjamas, uh, wrapped up in a, in a blanket. <laughs> and uh, I was just told they just, they go, just, they were, go, go back to sleep while we're they're driving along. And you're thinking, now, well, you know, this is a bit exciting. Sort of, they they're going somewhere, and I get obviously in my pajamas, sort of thing. And um, so you keep. You, so I was doing the, the usual you know, thing which kids do at that age, very inquisitive, wondering you know, where we're going, always asking you know, the, you know, the why, why are we you know, getting up so early, why are we you know, in the car, you know, why are we going somewhere, and all you just been get get told is they you know, go back to sleep. Um, and then we get to uh, the uh, to, a fleet, to the Fleet Air Museum uh, down in Yelverton, which I've mentioned briefly about a short uh, time ago. And we arrived then. I thought, well, why have we come to the museum? We've been here before. And uh, then there was getting there changed, and um, a coach pulled up um, outside the entrance to the museum, and um, it was there to uh, pick um, us up along with a uh, hunt with um, of ninety six other people. And I thought, where are we going? And uh, again, my parents wouldn't tell me. Um, they just said, oh, no, we're just going to go on a little no back coach trip. And uh, a few hours later, we then ended up at Heathrow Airport. And you're thinking, okay, we're at Heathrow Airport. What is going on? And yeah, so at that point, then that uh, my parents said, well, we're going to go on Concord. And I thought, what? And um, I think... Uh, from what my dad was telling me, um, his recollection of, of that moment, he said that the first thing he said after we told you that we're going to go on the aeroplane was, where are our bags? 
because we just literally turned up with I was just they just there they dressed in a in they in, in, um, in my school in trousers and um, shirt and uh, in a, and a, a coat and um, I thought well my dad hasn't hasn't got a bag my mum's got her handbag and I thought but where are our bags and apparently I was making quite a big fuss about this at the time um, but uh, and we ended up uh, flying from Heathrow down to Yeovilton and I believe the reason for that trip was. It was to commemorate the uh, the tenth anniversary, um, anniversary of when the prototype um, Concorde 002 made its uh, final flight into Yeovilton um, to be uh, preserved at uh, the museum down there. Um, so it was about it was about half an hour flight. Um, but um, my one of the things I do re- that I do recall is the takeoff um, and. Um, I remember that obviously being five years old, you're not you know, the tallest of people um, in an airliner seat. And um, I was having to like lift myself out of my seat um, to try to look out the window. And when I was trying to do that, the, you know, the power was then applied and we had to take and the takeoff roll was commencing and you do get pinned back into your seat and I couldn't even move myself. It was that, it was that no, um, no powerful takeoff. And, um, I shouldn't even admit to this, but when we were landing at um, at Yelverton, um, uh, I, for some reason, and uh, this is the first I've actually said this to anyone, uh, it's the first uh, I actually adopted a brace position because oh, I had a clue what was going on. <laughs> and because um, and, uh, I just thought we're coming, everyone's saying, well, they were coming to land. And I just thought, oh, I better brace sort of thing. Um, even now I'm thinking back and I'm thinking why on earth did I do that for um, but uh, for five years old so by name, I can get away with it sort of thing for that you didn't scream um, brace brace did you I don't think I did no I hopefully didn't if I had then I'm sure my my uh, my uh, parents would have uh, told me about it um, right. so I probably embarrassed them enough on that trip anyway um, and um uh, the, the last time it flew on it was um, in its final year of operation, which it, it's, it's strange to think now. It's almost 17 years ago that the aircraft stopped uh, flying commercially. Um, and I was determined to to go on a flight on the aircraft. And at the time, I was working for um, a subsidiary of British Airways, so you had access to the um, staff travel um, incentives. And I had planned to fly on the airplane at the end of uh, May, and that was all they, um, they fine. And then I think towards the end of April, that was when um, both Air France and British Airways announced that they were going to withdraw um, Concorde. So I thought, okay, the tickets are going are to be selling out pretty quickly. So I had to make a decision to bring my plans forward. So the day that I decided that I was going to go to New York, um, I then next morning, you know, phoned up British Airways uh, to book the uh, staff ticket to fly to New York and then booked a hotel. And then 24 hours after I'd done all that, I was on my way to Heathrow uh, to catch the um, 747-400 with BA to Heathrow, uh, sorry, to uh, New York. Um, of course, that aircraft is now lo- no longer in the BA service. That re- the last one, I think, was retired um, or, f- or flew into retirement uh, uh, just la- this last week, actually. Well, all the romantic airplanes are going, are gone. They are. They are. It's, 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 it's very sad, actually. Um, I've, um, I've, I've been up to Kemble Airfield where some of the BA 74s have actually been, um, have been uh, uh, arriving. And... 
inevitably those aircraft when they land there they're never going to depart um it is very much the 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 the, the boneyard right. um so it, right. it's, it's very sad we're very lucky actually that all the or all the concourse that were still in service um towards the end of its life have been preserved yeah well on the, i went on that and um that was about seven and a half hours of uh, of boredom, uh, which was um, only relieved by watching the Lord of the Rings uh, film twice. Um, <laughs> you know, it was Pressure. yeah. There's not much there's, there's not much to do. Yeah, um, although the precious was was waiting for me at uh, at JFK the following morning. Yeah. Um, and um, so yeah, I, I was only in, in New York for less than twenty four hours because uh, the. The, the ultimate goal was just to get to New York and then get on a flight to come back. And um, uh, so next morning, I think I woke up about you know, five o'clock in the morning and then got uh, a taxi, sorry, a cab uh, from uh, Manhattan to go to uh, JFK. It took about, about 45 minutes, I think, to do that. And it was a typical New York morning. It was grey, wet, you know, people do want to talk to you really. Um, and then you get to New York, um, JFK, and uh, it was still wet and grey. Um, but that didn't matter to me because I thought, you know, not you know, in about an hour's time, I'll be, you know, in the air and we'll see sunshine, you know, and all, all the grey will, will be behind us. And um, it was it was wonderful. Um, the reason that I decided to fly back from New York was because um, for those who are Concorde fans themselves, um, the aircraft has to do a particular um, departure route out of New York for noise abatement reasons. And it's called the Canazi climb. So basically the airplane has to take off from the, um, from the southerly to um, uh, northwesterly, um, southeasterly runways and has to do this, this um, sharp turn to avoid all the housing areas, which are to the north of uh, Kennedy. And I thought, well, that looks like quite good fun. So I wanted to, to actually experience that. And, um, uh, and we weren't uh, disappointed. Um, the airplane took off from that very runway, 3-1 left, uh, if anyone's interested. <laughs> and um, about 100 feet off the, um, after getting uh, off the runway, we then did a... Uh, I think it's a 25 or 30 degree bank turn um, across uh, the uh, across J- uh, Jamaica Bay, and um, board, and still climbing as well. Um, so we could just get out um, across the coastline as quickly as possible. And I remember at the time um, the captain, um, when he's doing his his PA just before we pushed back from stand, uh, was saying that um, we'll be going supersonic 11 minutes after takeoff. And I actually timed it on my watch to see if that was actually the, the, the case. And it was the case. They, they, they were bang on target and uh, we got to uh, reach uh, uh, Mach 1 um, just uh, about 11 minutes after takeoff. And, uh, and it, it was brilliant. Um, you know, it was everything that I um, dreamed that the aircraft would be. And um, service on board was brilliant. Um, and it was just fantastic to be in this airplane. Although it was a bit weird that you're on an airplane which you're going at Mach 2, but you've got no sense of you actually going at that speed until you see the subsonic aircraft who are about 20,000 feet below you. And they look as if they actually are flying backwards because you are going about 800 miles an hour faster than they are. And it's incredible. And even more incredible that, you know, in just, you know, three and a half hours, I was back 
you know, in the UK. Um, so it's um, it's surprising at uh, the the sheer difference, you know, in uh, in that flying on a if you like a steamship, you know, with the those seven four seven, and then uh, you know coming back over on um, on a Ferrari um, essentially, and um, so and yeah, uh, it's it's um, it's definitely a memorable trip, and I'm very glad that I did do it. And uh, for me, uh, that's my equivalent to you know students these days doing like a gap year, you know, out to you know some far flung destination. You know, it's like you know they can do that, not a problem. You know, but you know the place that they go to, like the Far East or uh, you know, and uh, Australia, they'll always be there. But you know, to fly at this height at this speed, it's not going to be around forever. So. I'm quite happy with my choice. <laughs> no, I think it's a very good choice. There's a lot of people that would be um, uh, very jealous of you getting, I mean, not just one, but three opportunities to, um, you know, to fly and Concord. I'm just wondering whether they'd bring it back. I know, I know the, how do you say, um, they're trying, I think, to bring out this new fuel. I know biofuels is a little bit, Mm-hmm. on the expensive side to produce but i mean there was some talk about uh kerosene and, and ammonia and oh, okay there was allegedly i don't know there i think there's mm-hmm. some uh plan to set up i think five stations within europe in the next 10 years where they produce this very i think it's carbon zero uh oh right um and it's like an exclusive as if i'm telling the world we saw the secrecy, but but that's now gone to the pan. <laughs> yeah, but I think for probably for educational purposes, because as well, it is an interesting, thing, especially for you know kids growing up now. That you know these are the ideas that because aviation does get a bit of a hammering at times with regards to its carbon footprint. Oh, it does. It's um, it's the one thing that I have um, always beaten the drum about. Um, uh, where where I have seen on the uh, well whether it's been the TV or a radio interview. And even when I've you know, been um, in Bristol Centre and so there's been a, uh, a stand and you've got people who are wanting you to support you know, climate change and so forth. And when they ask you what you do for a living, they say, well, I work in the aviation industry. Um, it can be a little bit you know, awkward. Um, but um, but I, I try to sort of you know, make the point across that, you know, aviation is not, you know, this evil you know, industry that is being, you know, which is being put across by, um, by, by people, um, you know, in the, um, media, um, you know, and when you, like, I've mentioned this to friends of mine who, you know, they've wanted to you know how much, you know, the industry actually contributes. And when you point out on that, you know, the amount of work that is gone, that's put in by the airlines, you know, to, you know, do whatever they can to reduce their carbon footprint, because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, aircraft burn fuel. And the one thing that you know, all airlines want to do is find a way to reduce the fuel burn, which, of course, then reduces you know, the, the carbon and other pollutants. Well, actually, so we, yeah, I mean, yes. as, as to, to, to add on to that, just there uh, briefly, just to confirm mm. what I'm saying is, is not nonsense. I mean, I'm reading here an article, there's a Daily Mail, and they only brought one out there, I think it was in August of this year. And they just said ammonia as jet fuel rather than kerosene could take to the skies within years. And uh, oh, okay. it'll be zero emission airplanes could take to the skies within years. Now, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm sure they'll have to do a lot of trials and make sure it's safe. But, mm. um, 
you know, it would be quite interesting that if if uh, if you have airplanes like Concorde sitting around, um, mm. and you do have these fuels popping up again, why why couldn't they use them? I don't know. There's something well, discussion. I don't know. <laughs> it's interesting because um, it's it, it's it's one thing that has popped up um, when um, uh, when I've I've, I've um, been talking to other people uh, and. Uh, just you know, going back to Concordia briefly, um, I've had people um, they say to me, "Well, you know, British Airways should never have you no know, of um, grounded the airplane. They should have handed it over to Branson um, with uh, Virgin." And um, I then have to educate them, you know, with the fact that well, if if Richard Branson did acquire the airplanes, he wouldn't be able to do anything with them because they would he would just basically have have you know, been given seven white elephants. In the fact that you know, if British Airways can't fly them, then Virgin can't fly them. Yeah. And if British Airways could find a way to keep the aircraft flying, they would have done. Um, I remember back in 2002 when the aircraft was came back into service after having that um, that year of um, grounding after the um, the Paris crash, which is a terrible thing to have happened. And when I look back at the at, at the reports into you know how that accident happened, um, I. I, I do get quite angry with um, how um, so many, you know, opportunities to break the chain, you know, to prevent an accident from happening, um, just, you know, just failed. Um, but I digress on that one. Um, but when you have to explain to people that the reason, the reason the airplane has stopped flying is because no Airbus who holds a type certificate for the aircraft, they withdrew their support for the airplane. And without that, that support, you can't operate it. Right. Um, and the funny thing is, is that um, just literally yesterday, um, as a matter of fact, um, I was actually uh, reading a um, a story on the BBC News website uh, because um, in America they've got to the um, that they're building a um, demonstration a demonstrator um, of the Boom supersonic business jet, and they were interviewing uh, Mike Bannister. He was the he was the last um, chief pilot. For the Concorde fleet at British Airways, mm-hmm. and um, he was saying about um, they, that uh, one of the reasons that um, they couldn't um, that British Airways couldn't um, um, operate the airplane anymore. Um, by the sounds of it, it, it sounds as if they were trying to acquire the type certificate from Airbus. Um, but from what I can read, the reason that they, that they couldn't do that was because the the air intake system. On Concorde is quite a sophisticated piece of technology and it was obviously designed and developed in the 60s um, using um, uh, technology from uh, Bristol's uh, missile um, division if I remember which is now part of Matra BA Dynamics and apparently the the system is still um, very secret and that's one of the reasons why they wouldn't um, give um, the or hand over the um, type certificate to British Airways that's right. my understanding. So it's quite interesting on that side. But um, I do remember back in 2003 when um, when they were trying to think of ways to keep at least one aircraft operating to do air shows and other special fly pass. Um, it was very early days and I was asked actually myself if I'd be interested in helping out in like looking after the uh, manuals that they held at the um, simulator just up the road to, at, uh, to Filton at Bristol. And I said, well, I would definitely they volunteer for it. But um, that never you know, happened, obviously. Um, but I think today, um, to get the aircraft back into service, it would cost you, you know, 
hundreds of millions of pounds. Um, the aircraft hasn't flown for, say, for 17 years, and some of them have only just um, started to, you know, be put under cover. And um, the way that the aircraft have been decommissioned has basically rendered them, as far as I know, unable to be uh, put back into the sky. I mean, I remember seeing the last aircraft actually you know, landing uh, to Bristol um, back in November two, of uh, 2003. And that was outside for a good 10 years before it then was put into um, shelter. Unfortunately, the, the weather and the, the, the elements, they get to aircraft and you know corrosion did set in on, on some areas. So you'd have to spend a lot of time to to basically strip the airplane down and rebuild it essentially, which is what it had to do with the Vulcan um, bomber, you know, back in 2008. So um, I think it's more sad that there wasn't a direct replacement for the aircraft, um, but we're starting to see things happening now. So maybe in another 10 years, maybe we'll uh, see, uh, we'll see some action about that again. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I suppose like anything else in, in any industry, I suppose, when, uh, when money's involved or high costs are involved, uh, sentiment kind of goes out the window. Unfortunately. It does. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fact the uh, economy and size of scale of, of, of the two sort of the driving forces, really. And um, it's interesting that um, one of the things that I think has been quite um, fascinating is being seeing how we've seen new aircraft being developed. I mean, the A380, um, when that was originally um, conceived back in the late 90s, you know, at the time, everyone was saying, well, aviation is just going to keep growing and growing and growing. And uh, you know, with uh, slots at airports like Heathrow becoming a lot more you know, precious to try to acquire. So you need a bigger airplane to try to still get to make passengers like, you know, onto a single flight. And But now it's completely turned itself on its head. Um, even before the whole COVID um, situation has you know, come about. But, you know, the A380 has not become this cash cow that, you know, um, was originally they thought of. Um, and even obviously Boeing has you know, seen a huge decline in the number of orders for that 747 passenger variant. Um, and I think really, um, hats off to Boeing when they built the 777. It's surprising just how incredibly flexible that design has been yeah. um, uh, for it to now be on its uh, on its uh, third stretch, I guess, now with, with the Dash 8, Dash 9 series. Yeah, um, well, the new wing, well, it's not the wing design, what is it? It is a new wing design, isn't it? Or is it uh, a, yeah, it's, um, got fold, well. it's, it's got folding wingtips, which um, originally um, Boeing had, um, they had a plan for those on the original um, 777 design. But um, no airline actually put, um, actually wanted that option. Um, but um, it's interesting seeing those the wings, you know, the, the wingtips they folding up. It's they just like it's got winglets. Um, but um, but yeah, it's 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 an incredible design actually. Um, but um, whether um, uh, it will actually get more orders, uh, I, I don't think it's actually got as many orders as um, they hoped it would. But you know. Maybe in a couple of years' time, when things hopefully return a little bit more to normal, um, then uh, it might start to get a bit more demand uh, coming its way. That's it, kids. Listen to this podcast. Ammonia fuel is the future. Woohoo! It know, is absolutely. We'll get we'll get back to flying as soon as possible. Everybody will be back in work as soon as possible. Fingers crossed. So let's move on then, uh, uh, Phil. With regards to the most important part, because this podcast is about you. It's not about Boeing. Oh. It's not about Airbus. No, it's, it's not about Concorde. It's about <laughs> 
Phil Cap. So we yeah. know pilots, we've heard about cabin crew, we hear about engineers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. air traffic controllers. So you're a flight ops weight and weight engineer. Yes. Tell me, what are you, Phil? You're like the Terminator. What is a flight ops weight engineer? Um, I'd like to say it's a very special person, um, okay. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, you know, ever the humble guy that I am. Um, very humble. So, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, weight engineer. It's um, it yeah. It, it's 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 one of those um, areas which you don't hear anything about at all when you're um, going to a careers advisor at school and I never really sort of knew much about this until I started to work in aviation and uh, just to give a bit of background for this um, my interest in in aircraft weights began back in 2000 when I was working for Bryman and we had acquired um, Embraer 145 regional jets they're 50 seat regional jets uh, we used to call them the Barbie jets because they were so small and they would only be big enough to fit you know, the Barbie and uh, Ken dolls in them, essentially. <laughs> so quite pokey airplane. Um, but nonetheless, it was a jet aircraft. It, it, was, it was Bryman's first jet aircraft. And um, not long after we started um, operating them, we started to run into problems with them in terms of both performance and with the aircraft weight. Um, and I thought, well, I, well, I heard of these two words being banged around the, the, the office. I thought, what are they talking about? So I was chatting to my, to my boss at the time, um, a really nice, uh, nice chap, actually, um, Mark Buck, who sadly passed away last year. But um, he, was, he was an excellent manager um, when I was at Bryman. And um, uh, it um, took me um, on... Uh, under his wing, um, you know, to a you know, to a certain extent, you know, to uh, help me develop my uh, my interest in uh, the airline industry more. Um, but um, but yeah, with the one four five, the aircraft um, had a problem where it had um, a lot of weight, you no know, forward of the airplane's center of gravity. So you then have to try to find a way to balance the airplane. Um, our best way to describe this is that if you imagine you've got like like a seesaw, you've got like you know, you've got you've got a pivoting um, you know in the middle, and you imagine that um, the air that uh, the aircraft uh, nose is on the um, left hand side, and the aircraft tail is on the uh, right hand side, and you wanted to make sure that you know the uh, that uh, the air, that that um, the airplane is sort of balanced so that the nose is just slightly you know up. You know, to just to help with um, aerodynamic efficiency when flying, um, and unfortunately, um, the Embraer wasn't um, a forgiving airplane in terms of you no know, balance, and that's when my interest you know, um, had peaked. And thinking that was actually quite an interesting area to look at, um, and you know, it beats the you know, about cabin crew, you know, having to deal with you no know, awkward passengers and to. Uh, uh, pilots um, complain that they don't have a hot breakfast in the morning. So oh, their, so upsetting. That's so annoying, oh, that is. It's yeah. very annoying. You know, my, my heart you know, goes out to them entirely. Where's my lobster? Uh, Where's exactly. My lobster? <laughs> exactly. This is not the Chateau Leblanc, no, no 76. I want to, you, you could be 1980. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, uh, my, my, my interest they um, started to rise with that, and then when I started that flyby, I then actually started working for um, their um, their publications manager, who also looked after the weight and balance side. And the job of the weights engineer is basically 
Um, it's twofold. So when you have a brand new aircraft type coming into service, um, you want to um, make sure that uh, we can operate uh, the aircraft um, so that um, uh, it can carry all the passengers that is required for the route and their bags, and that um, it's going to keep the aircraft uh, within the centre of gravity envelope that has been um, created by the manufacturer. So um, you then start to work out, um, you know, with, this, with the layout of the aeroplane, um, you know, working out, uh, you know, what the best um, operating limits are. Because although they do have the manufacturer's um, envelope, you always want to curtail it a little bit. So it's just so you've got a little bit of like safety margin so that, um, you know, if you do have the passengers who are probably a little bit heavier than the average, you know, no, no passenger, then you've got a bit of no margin, no, no to play with. Because um, you know, unlike with the smaller airplanes, with the larger aircraft, you know, we don't weigh passengers. Um, you have an average, you, you take a figure which is stipulated by the regulator. And um, I think for, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it's about 80, 80 kilograms for a uh, male passenger on, right. uh, on European routes. Yep. I think uh, for females, I think it's about um, uh, 76. I can't remember them precisely. It's, 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 it's been a while since I've seen the figures now. I think it's what the um, difference between the charter and the schedule, isn't it? They kind of mix them up, isn't it? There is, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I think it's because yeah, the, the the charter weights were a little bit lower because the because um, you'd tend to have more baggage put into the hold than you would on a on a scheduled flight, um, and um, so you, you're trying to make sure that to, you you can uh, to, to work out you know uh, the the worst case scenarios for if the airplane is loaded you know you know with a lot of passengers at the front um, rather than at the back and vice versa. And um, the other side of it is when you have an aircraft which is you know, in service already and if the airplane has been in maintenance and if it's been reweighed and that happens every four years, um, unless you've had a lot of maintenance on the airplane where the weight has accumulated from modifications being installed um, and you've got to then uh, reweigh the airplanes. And then you've got then uh, looking after the publication of the um, of the new uh, weights information, uh, which is used by both the flight crew and for the uh, ground handlers um, to create the load sheet, um, which can either be in a uh, nice, neatly uh, printed you know, layout um, from a computer, or it's a um, it's a it's a uh, trim chart. Uh, we have to just base like a, on the old you know, carbon sheets you have to fill in. Oh yes. And uh, you know how to do like, the, the whole uh, drop down you no know, lines to uh, you know, <laughs> go across. You remember them. <laughs> and um, see, seeing these trim charts, um, you know, for the first time, I thought, how on earth did they create them? You know, I just thought to me it was witchcraft. And um, I then started to figure out how to do them, and uh, you know, with the help of my manager at the time. And when we were bringing into service the Embraer One Seven Five. So low-wing twin-engine, um, no short or airliner, um, and um, I thought, well, you know, as I'm sort of building up my knowledge of this, um, I took it upon myself in my own time to start, you know, trying to create the trim graph for it. So there was quite a few evenings where I'll be at home with my 
graph paper and all of my you know, old you know, drawing pilot pens and all that bits and pieces, calculator out, you know, and uh, you know, with a glass of red wine as well to help me along. Yes. And, uh, uh, they, they tell what, what me year? What year feels very important. Oh goodness! Um, I think uh, so. Uh, well, I was doing all of this in about 2010, so it would have been maybe about year, uh, year 2005. Right. Um, so yeah, I do tend to buy cheap. No, it was Tesco's. Oh, Tesco's was it? Every little helps. It really does. It was, yeah. Other other major supermarket brands are available, of course. <laughs> just uh, so people aren't to think I'm focusing one particular yes. brand. Yeah. Um, so spending time to actually draw the graphs out, and um, I did a couple of them, uh, and. I then took them into work and asked my manager if he could you know, just you know, test to see if I've actually done this right or not. And I had done it more or less, you know, as good as I could, you know, obviously with the accuracy that you can get from ones which have been designed on computers, obviously going to be a lot more, but I was quite happy with what I had most to do in terms of having the basics um, of doing it. Um, so there was that side of it. And, uh, later on down the line, and um, this was very much the case towards the uh, well, towards a sad ending really of um, of a flyby um, when um, we had been acquired by a consortium that was um, involved Virgin Atlantic, and we were going to be rebranded to become Virgin Connect. Um, we started to do a lot of work um, into the uh, reconfiguring of the cabins on uh, the Q400 fleet. Right. Um, and it was um, the um, there's various plans looked at. Some some of them were looking at whether we have no different, no actual, no replace the seats entirely with more with uh, with new seats like lighter weight seats. Uh, whether we reduce the number of seats on board or increase them, so you then have to look at you know, um the uh, seat pitch, and um, that obviously can then affect you know the um, the loading of the airplane as well. Um, and also then the configuration of like, you no, know, are we taking out you know, a galley that then replace it with a wardrobe? Um, which on the Q400 has always been an interesting thing. The Q400, like the Embraer Warfare 5, that was a nose heavy airplane. Um, and um, we always have problems with the, with the Q400 uh, because it had a, a baggage hold, not just at the back of the airplane, uh, which had a maximum capacity of about 1200 kilos, if I remember off the top of my head. And on, and at the front, they had a small baggage hold, which could take up to about 400 kilos, depending on what variant it was. And unfortunately, um, we were always, always on the nose, just like they had a forward limit um, for the airplane's um, center of gravity. And so trying to find a way to, you know, get some weight to shift from the front to the back to just help the airplane interim a bit more has always been, um, has always been difficult. And then you started to, to do some work to try to figure out what we can do to try to, ease that off. And that's where the weights engineer sort of comes in. They sort of try to help to find a way to, you know, improve the, uh, the, the, the trimming of the airplane. Um, and Ozzy, as I said, if, if, uh, if you're doing the, the reconfiguring of the cabin um, and you need to then uh, have new uh, load sheets uh, that need to be created. And then also then uh, amending, uh, updating, if you like, the um, AHM 565, uh, which is a document which is, um, given to all of the um, handling agents or um, dispatch control um, services so that they can then create a load sheet based on the information contained in this document. And that document contains information on, for example, um, the uh, location of, say, the hold, you know, from the airplane's you know, reference datum, 
um, and the same with the seats. Um, so it's 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 um, a lot of stuff in there, um, which I found really interesting. When I've shown people the spreadsheets I've done over the years, uh, working out the safe um, loading limits for both forward and aft of an aeroplane, and they just see numbers, comes the numbers. And it's been funny when I've been showing um, uh, children who've come into the office on work experience, and I've shown them these, these column of numbers, and you just see their eyes just sort of just like, thinking what on earth is what on earth am i looking at um it's all nasa it's all space it's, it's all it's all nasa <laughs> it, it, it's, it's even it, it is it's even better when it when they then um sit with my they with my manager at the time and he goes through aircraft performance um as well um and that's another part which um that i would have loved to have done a bit more um work on it was aircraft performance i did do a course um, on that back in 2010, um, but I never got the opportunity to actually you know, apply the knowledge that I gained from that um, into into work. Um, but um, but that's just how it is. But I'm glad that I did know actually they pick up you know, actually do some training on that and actually sort of know a bit more about it, which has actually helped. You know, while I've been doing my um, PPL um, course um, at, uh, at at this moment in time, so. So the weights engineer, it, it, it's um, it's an interesting role in the fact that you do have uh, fingers in quite a few pies. You you are involved in the the day to day operation of uh, the airline because um, you might get a call from you know a crew who are saying that we've got a problem with they with um, you know, with uh, trying to join the airplane. Can you help us out a bit? Um, if it's something that can't really be um, sorted out at you know, the station level. Um, through to you know discussing with engineering about you know whether they've got um, aircraft being reweighed or having modification done, and then as I've alluded to just now when we were starting to look at you new know, uh, rebranding and uh, the uh, reconfigure of the cabin, you then have an input in working out what is this going to what what effect will this have on the aircraft you know, for operating it. So you did actually get a good insight into other parts of the business. Um, uh, which, um, which which could actually it, um, it just meant that people could understand a little bit more about you know why you, you may or may not be able to do certain things that you'd like to do on the aircraft, um, and um, it's, it just made it you know, a lot easier to try to know to get things you know um, sorted out or at least find a solution to a um, problem that you was know, about to sort of rear its, its head a bit. I, I must have been a nightmare for the uh, dispatchers when we were getting the uh, the aircraft in uh, in the weight and balance uh, you know limits pretty much because I'm more of the rounder figure, gentle. Ah, uh, okay. Um, they did have to make sure the CFG central gravity was kind of rearward, especially on takeoff, because the nose was yeah. so heavy with me at the front. And then obviously for landing, when the gear came down, they had to make sure like the the, the gear wasn't as um, as heavy. Because I could, I made allowances for that gear, you know, to keep the yeah. nose down. So, um, yeah, I just have to live with these problems. That's just the way it is, you know. I'm gonna get back to the gym as soon as I can. Um, <laughs> <honest> and <laughs> so, what about? Um, I keep saying when I do these podcasts, I probably have to say this different way because I, I say, "Have you any funny stories?" And, and mm-hmm. some of the guests kind of go, "Funny? What do you mean by funny? You mean awkward?" And, no, no. So I'm gonna rephrase it. Have you any okay. stories of humor throughout your? aviation career or journey uh, i'm sure there's many um over the um it's funny it's uh, it's almost 24 years since i started in the industry um you and, look amazing um, Phil. absolutely amazing. oh 
Excellent, thank you. It's uh, yeah, it's um, I think it's just uh, having a the uh, Toblerone uh, chocolate regularly does help actually. Yes. Uh, I don't I don't bother with the all of you lay stuff, uh, that, no. that doesn't seem to do much. You don't need them, you don't need them. No, them. exactly, no, exactly. And um, uh, I, I should say, I don't rub Toblerone chocolate on my on my face, I do eat it. So, just you in case people are wondering why, you know, just they just so to get it out there to clarify, yeah. Um, but um, so uh, story wise, um one that um that i do recall was when uh i was um i was over in brazil um and my manager who i mentioned um earlier on um when i was a brahmin he um took me to um, brazil uh to uh, pick up uh one of the uh, brand new embryos that we had ordered so i was part of the acceptance team and so we felt with him and um uh several engineers and uh, we were in brazil for uh, a week um well just under a week uh, we flew into sao paulo then spent an hour driving uh, north towards uh, sao jose dos campos which is where embryo's production facility is and we're there for a few days they to check the airplane out go on the test flights they check the paperwork and so forth and it was fascinating actually seeing that side of of the industry as well um, to see how you know, you actually acquire an airplane. And um, on the final day of being at the factory, when, um, you know, there's like a, there's a three-way conference call between the airline, the banks, and the aircraft manufacturer to then do this whole complex transaction of the funds, you know, to make sure that the money has been, has left, you know, the airline's account is now in the airline's bank's account, and then the lawyers then transfer it to the manufacturer's the bank, <laughs> And then you then get the lawyers from their side to confirm, yet yeah, the money has been deposited in your account. And then they, then they sign off all of these certificates. And whilst we're out in Brazil, um, you know, at the time, I don't know if it's, if it's the case now, but you know, um, you know, um, certain um, you know, uh, beverages were, were quite cheap. Right. And we thought, well, okay, well, as long as we, you know, we can actually you know, um, go to the local supermarket, pick up some, some nice you know, uh, bottles and uh, turn it back with us. Um, and I should stress at the very outset that everything that came back was within the, you know, within the uh, parameters of the customs right. you know, allowances. So we never you know, um, broke those rules. Wink, wink. Uh, okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, no, no, we, we definitely were because uh, when, we, when we arrived back at Bristol, we did have customers come on board to, you know, to check it or so. So, yeah, so before people start to think, I've been smuggling stuff in, I haven't. Right, Phil, we believe you. Okay, because yep. carry on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so and we so we went back to the hotel and to pick up our bags. We came back to the um, to the factory then to, to get ready to, you know, to depart. And um, an engineer of mine uh, who I was um, travelling with he plonked his bag down and um, I thought I could hear something though know, in that bag you know, I thought something has got a baseball bat in there or something. And then um, we walked into the office to then finish up you know, the whole the paperwork signing bit. And then we then um, someone came into the office and said, Oh, there's uh, there's a big, this is a bit wet outside your office. So just take care. And then when we walked out to pick up our bags, the engineer looked at his bag and it had, um, it was just all soaked. Um, he had a bottle of Bacardi Gold that he bought from um, the local supermarket, and that that sound that I heard earlier on was basically the, the sound of the bottle smashing. So 
the Bacardi Gold just soaked into all of his clothes in that bag. Right. And it's like, okay. Such a waste. Such a waste. Such a waste. Yeah, we, we all were thinking the same thing, actually. It's like Bacardi Gold. You can't get it. You can't get it in that many places. Yeah. So we then go on, the, on, on board the airplane and, and call, okay, he needs to dry his clothes. So he then empties out his, his, um, his bags and puts all of his clothes into the overhead lockers to help them air out and dry out. So we then took off from the factory and uh, we then headed up to, to um, a city called Recife, which is on the northeast tip of uh, Brazil. And we stayed overnight there. And uh, the following morning, um, we got back to the airport and um, we had to you know, have um, the uh, Brazilian authorities had to need to the customs clearances. Um, so they came into the aircraft with us in the morning and um, we opened up the airplane and when you um, go onto a brand new aeroplane, the one thing that everyone says about is the smell, the smell yeah. of a brand new aeroplane. You know, like, and, and even I can think about it now, actually. Um, however, this aeroplane is literally just uh, a week old. So when we get back to the aeroplane the next morning and open up the aircraft door, you expect to have that 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 lovely you know, brand new aircraft smell, the interior, the, 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 <laughs> the new leather, you know that, that you have. No, you open the door and uh, you then come. You then have this wall of uh, Bacardi Gold, you know, scent, <laughs> and it's like, okay, this is going to be a bit awkward because we've got a uh, member of the Brazilian custom team is actually walking around the aircraft to make sure that we're not going to be taking anything out of the country illegally, which you weren't anyway. But it doesn't help when he's walking the airplane and he can smell, you know, the very, very strong, you know, the scent of Bacardi, you know, on the airplane. <laughs> and you think it's not, it's, I mean, for, hopefully this is, this is going to cause a problem. But when we actually, when we explained to him, I mean, luckily we had, um, uh, one of the Embraer test pilots actually was flying the aircraft back um, there with us. So he, he actually, he was actually quite, um, he was actually able to talk to the, um, to the um, officer to just to explain why. And, um, and uh, the, uh, the customer officer did see the funny side of it and, um, but, uh, and uh, laughed a bit, but. Um, the rubber gloves didn't yeah. come out, did they? Sorry, the rubber gloves never came out, did they? They never came out. No, no. Thankfully, we, uh, we avoided that. Um, but uh, yeah, it was. So yeah, that was one thing that that did stick out my mind actually. With um, you know uh, when we we did that, and uh, um, another time, uh, time I recall was back in two thousand and two, when uh Bryman Airways had merged with um another regional airline called British Regional Airlines, which was part of a a, a bigger airline group which BA acquired and so we merged with them. And I think it's March 2002 and we had to um we had to change all the paperwork on board all the aircraft basically because now that we had become one airline, all of the um operations manuals, all of the um legal certificates um that had the name either Bryman Airways or British regional airlines had to be changed um, to the new airline, British Airways City Express. So it was a mammoth task. It's like 92 aircraft spread all over the UK. So we had people you know, going all over the place. So whether it's like going as far as Inverness, down to Plymouth, across to Belfast, and down to um, the Southampton area. It was a massive logistical challenge. And um, I remember we had 
all of the brand new manuals um, came to Bristol Airport uh, for myself and a colleague of mine to sort through. And the, the manuals should have been all boxed in, the, the, in their complete sets so that we could just say, yep, this box is for so-and-so aircraft, this box is for so-and-so aircraft. But that wasn't the case. All the boxes, they, had, they just basically had to put in boxes of like, you know, there'll be one box contained like 10 of the same manuals. So we had to basically empty all the manuals, then sort them out into aircraft sets, which we weren't expecting to do. So that took us about five hours to get sorted out, uh, with just two of us. <laughs> um, and because we weren't expected to do this, I didn't have any of the tools, the trade, they didn't have like scissors or parcel tape at hand to repackage all the boxes up. So good search around the whole of the terminal, just the begging, borrowing, you know, um, you know, for scissors and tape of any kind to just get us to get all these boxes packed up, which we did eventually, but boy, it was, it was a mammoth task. And then uh, the next day when I was getting all the boxes put onto a flight to go up to Aberdeen to, they saw that the aircraft based in Aberdeen would get their new manuals all there. The flight would actually go via Newcastle. And normally the airplane would go to Newcastle, they quick turn around, they uh, passengers would come on, Etc. And then the aircraft thing would then fly off and then go up to Aberdeen. Well, on this occasion, we had an aircraft swap in Newcastle. <laughs> so I phoned up the handling agent in Newcastle and said to him that I normally don't do this, but it is, it is imperative that the boxes which are on this flight coming up from Bristol to Aberdeen are put onto the Aberdeen flight. Um, otherwise, we're not going to have aircraft flying in the morning because of the legal you know, reasons, the documentation-wise. They said, yep, no worries, we'll get that all sorted for you. Well, about five o'clock in the morning, um, I get a call from uh, one of the uh, Aberdeen-based pilots saying that, um, well, we haven't seen the, the manuals um, for, the, uh, the, for the aircraft appear yet, so um, just wondering where they are. And I thought, oh, okay, have they not turned up? So... It's saying, okay, let's uh, call Newcastle Ground Handling and ask them what's happened. And uh, they said, no, we definitely put those boxes on the flight for you. Um, we've got the paperwork to say that. And I say, well, I've got a pilot who's in Aberdeen and they do not have them. He is um, told me that they've not seen them. And they say, no, no, we definitely put them on the airplane. So then how this to do a lot of the calling back then you know, to Aberdeen to find out have you can you just confirm you definitely don't have the manuals? I said, no, no, we don't have them at all, at all, right? So they start to have a debate and more as an argument with the Newcastle guys say, look, you know, they're not there. What have you done with them? Are you sure you have got them on the baggage carousel in your terminal or whatever? And I asked them if they could just go hunting around for them. And then about um, 10 minutes later, I then get a um, voicemail message from the pilot that I was speaking to. He had, so... This, he left this bit of information out when I was talking to him. He, he, I um, was under the impression that he was actually at the aircraft and, um, and he said they weren't there, but he was actually still in the crew room. <laughs> so when he got out to the aircraft to start his pre-flight checks, he then, that's when he, he phoned me up and left me that voice for which I listened to. And he said, oh, he must have, we must have gone because we've got the new manuals on here, actually. And I thought, okay. So I then phoned him back and asked him, well, why were you saying that you, you didn't have them originally? And that's when we found out that, uh, yeah, he was in the crew room. So I then had to um, <laughs> eat a bit of humble pie and phone up did Newcastle. I did. I had to say to him, I'm really, really sorry about this. Um, I've not been given 
the full information, um, they do have the boxes up at uh, Aberdeen. And so, so I'm very, very sorry that I've, that I've um, been, you know, um, you know, uh, a bit argumentative about whether they've actually gone there. They said, no, that's fine. And they, they just sort of, um, said, don't worry, pilots, end of. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> yeah, there is that, there, there, there is that side of it. Uh, but I should say not all pilots are like that, just, just know a few. Um, because, oh, yeah, you know, so. a little bit, uh, <laughs> most of the time. It's, um, and I, I can't believe that for a moment, David. Like, I can't believe that. For no, a honestly, single, I mean, uh, once I get my hair brushed, um, when I have this, uh, the day is good, and then I can kind of focus on on activities. But you know, those those, uh, especially the last uh, story you told there, that's kind of a regular occurrence for me, as uh, most people that work with me would uh, would agree with. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's part of that. So it's not. So it's not always about the hot breakfast not turning up then? No, I mean, it's as I said before, with my round figure. Uh, nothing wrong with having a round figure, anybody out there, but... Um, uh, See, I tend to be a bit more stickler for having the, you know, for it being you know, accurate uh, as, as, as much as possible. Um, so, um, but, um, you know, but that's, that's, just, that's just the whole you know, mathematics game, isn't it, really, of, uh, of deciding what's, you know, what's rounded more than the others. So, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> I remember there was something, and this is not to take away from your funny story, there was, a, there was and this, we talk about pilots here, and uh, mm-hmm. some will find this funny, and some might find this kind of offensive. But I'm going to tell it anyway. Where mm-hmm. I, I think we had, we had worked, I think we had worked a few days, kind of, and the guys that we'd all worked kind of together in the same uh, shift, a rota, uh, patron. Yeah. And uh, you know, you build relationships and stuff like that, and then you have a bit of a banter, you have a bit of a laugh. And there was one flight I remember. I was on the ground, and we're preparing, and the the other pilot went down. To the walk around, yeah. Goes through the walk around and he drew uh, a short straw, pretty much, and uh, goes up and uh, approaches the aircraft next door, and goes to sit in that flight deck because he thought, <laughs> he thought that he was actually on that aeroplane. And I'm looking, going, where, where, right. where, where the hell is he going? And then, <laughs> what it was was uh, when he went into the sit in the flight deck, he expected to see me, and he looked for left, <laughs> and the other pilot was there. He goes. Where's David gone? And he's like, "Who are you?" This type of thing. So yeah, it was it was um, <laughs> those type of uh, uh, interesting I, stories that we all we all happen through our career. I don't think I've ever. I don't think I've actually had that. Um, I've, I've not heard that happen to anyone that I know. Um, it's quite funny but, when you see it live. You're like, "Where where where is he going? Why is he going? Why, why is he walking up that step?" At the end of the day, they all look the same, don't they? I suppose it's um, that, that's yeah. one of the things that you did get a bit disorientated with thinking, "Oh yeah, they just they go back onto that's the same area." They, yeah, they're all the same sort of thing. But um, yeah, but that makes it worse, Phil. This is the embarrassing thing for the listener. Uh-huh. That, uh, you know, we were on a three twenty, and he walked mm-hmm. on a three thirty. So come on now. I mean, uh, yeah, this is <laughs> slight different, you know, but no, but different scale, but yeah. no, of, of airplane there, but uh, but both Maybe good aircraft. Promotion anyway, any immediate promotion onto a bigger aircraft, but anyway. Well, you know, I suppose the flight deck is is the same, isn't it, on both of them? It's it's, it's got that. It it's got the same they flight deck. So um, if he was on A340, if he was on A340, then I would be you no know, wandering because like. He'd be wondering why he got the new two additional uh, thrust levers compared to the two that he had before. Yeah. Unless it's sort of growing a couple of engines though in the space of the ten minutes he's been doing his walk around. Um, well, some of us wouldn't notice that anyway. That's the thing. No, it's, it's, <laughs> we walk around the clouds it, most of the time. Anyway. It is funny actually when um, 
uh, one of the things I used to do in Fipe was when we had uh, new pilots come in and we used to do the inductions and the part of the induction that I would be doing would be to help them set up their um, the uh, software on the um, iPads that we gave them, which had you know, the electronic flight back software, so to access their charts and documents, and um, and also try to just access some of the other um, systems that uh, that were in use. And um, it was interesting where I started to feel a little bit like the the school like headmaster type of thing, and I thought, right, this is my classroom, so my rules go. <laughs> and I'd always say to um, the, the two uh, all the new pilots, and they were a mixture. I mean, some I think the majority of them were tended to be coming from the flight schools, um, and you'd have maybe a couple who were, you know, uh, had been with a airline for a long time, and they arrived that they'd reached like the, the retirement age and uh, for like fifty five, and they started to want to just do do some research flying to to put them into retirement. Um, and it was interesting because you could work out in that induction um, period you know, who the who the good guys were and who were the naughty boys, <laughs> um, you know. And even though you say at the beginning of the induction that you know, what if you do you know when that when you get to a certain you know, web page you know, to sign in, don't sign in because you don't have the details yet. Um, or if you do sign in without knowing what you got to do next, then you're going to get run into problems. So when you take, say to everyone, when you get to a particular login page, don't do anything, just wait. Um, <laughs> and as I finished saying, doing the introductions, I had this one um, their hand come up from the, uh, from the back and uh, they said, oh, I've just tried to log into this site and it's not, um, and it's locked me out. And I've actually said things before, I won't make any bones about it. I thought I have to be pretty straight with them. I said, well, look, I did say, at the beginning not to you know go and you know, log into anything that you don't have the details for and, and i said and you know thinking well you're gonna have to just wait until everyone else has got to that same stage and then we'll sort out what's going on oh you're so and strict was, oh my word oh, headmaster very much i mean the thing is that we we, we want you we had like an hour so we had to make sure that we would that we did things as they to a strict you know, military framework um you got a few who would you know um come across as um, knowing more than you do. Um, and um, although they would say that, well, you didn't explain this. And it's like, we have, but you just weren't listening. Um, and they didn't like it when they tell you that, but that is the honest truth of the matter. Um, but then you get some where, you know, they, um, where they, they don't want to do anything because they, they're just concerned that they are going to you know, um, cause a problem um, as well. So there's a bit of, 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 um, of that hand-holding um, back to the same time. I do remember one um, pilot who has become very frustrated because his login was not working, even though he had, he had done everything right. And I said, okay, not a problem. Well, I said, well, um, we might have to, because we've run out of time for this session, we'll, I'll come back, you know, later on today after you've done your um, pressure induction and then we'll try and sort it out um, they then. You know, and someone else had the same issue and they said, yeah, that's fine, no problem. But this person... Um, I can't remember his name now, but um, uh, he just said to me in a very abrupt manner, well, that's going to take time out, out of my personal no time no, to do this. And I thought, well, and I just replied to him and said, well, I'm taking my personal time you know, to help you out. So, you know, you know, we'll both get this sorted out. And then a colleague of mine, um, she wanted to come over to meet the cruise. And um, Louise uh, is her name. And uh, she, she's she's very good at, um, at uh, sorting out, you know, 
like who the good and bad eggs are. <laughs> and um, when we went across to sort of help this, this, this pilot out to try to get his login working again, and when, we, when we attempted to log in and it didn't work, he just slammed his hands on the desk in frustration. And uh, Lou just said, no, don't do that. No, we've come up here to help you. So, no, no, listen, no, try and get things sorted out for you. And, um, you know, but eventually we did get it sorted out, but he didn't say thank you or anything like that. He was just, um, you know, we just thought, okay, yeah. Card marked on that one. So, uh, you know, so uh, it's... Um, we don't know his so name, do we? Will we name and shame him? Who is he? Um, Let's call him. I'm only joking. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 he... he, he he did have a funny surname, but um, but I can't actually remember um, they, what, um, they, what what it was now. But um, we all have a bad it, day. We all have a bad day. We all have bad days. I mean, I've 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 had bad days myself. You know, when they've been they've been up and they've working. I mean, there's times when, I've, and unfortunately, you know, you know, I have been called me. I've been called Mister Angry at work. You know, because <laughs> things just don't go according to plan. So you, and it's like, yeah, it's just one of those days. But then when those days started to get a lot more regular, you, you start to you know, think, no, something needs to they to happen here. And um, but um, which they, I guess, they, sadly it did. You no, know, um, in March when uh, you know when the airline uh, no longer was uh, operating. Um, but uh, that's um, uh, that itself, I think, is um, is uh, a story for next time. I think. So, so tell me this, Phil. So you know you started with regards obviously beginning of march and what's happened in the industry in general so let's try mm. and put a positive spin because there is a lot of negativity around the industry at the moment not just aviation uh mm. you know transport hospitality tourism you name it uh, yeah everybody's uh you know affected at the moment uh, with regards to uh, what's going on but I mean, what mm. advice would you have because you don't want to ruin somebody's dream because no matter what you Absolutely always, not. No. You know, somebody mm-hmm. wants to be a pilot, cabin crew, flight ops, yeah. engineer. You name mm-hmm. it. Then nobody's going to stop them from doing what they want to do. But exactly. You know what? What can you suggest to listeners at this moment in time? To you know, with regards to if they want to get into the industry, considering the, the difficulty at the moment. Yeah, um, I um, I would say um, don't um, don't. Uh, um, just throw it to one side thinking it won't happen. It will happen. Um, I was chatting with uh, some friends about this the other day because um, obviously it has, the, the, the last you know, six months have been, you know, uh, really, they're, 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 they've been horrible. You know, if we make no bones about it, you know, it's so seeing how things have, you know, evolved, you know, um, has been you know, heartbreaking. And, um, but, um, there's been uh, some commentators have been saying that you know, the industry will they, it, it, it will get back, but it obviously will be different to what it was before. I think it's interesting in the fact that um, having seen the industry through several other um, they, um, uh, problems that have occurred, I mean, the first for me that I remember was when 9-11 happened and that was a big shock and we all thought, oh, crikey, it's what's going to happen now. Um, the industry adapted and they got through it. Um, you then had the issue with the SARS, you know, which they, um, which they go is like a, a mini, a very mini version of what's been happening recently. But the, but the industry got through it. You had the financial crisis, which has come along again, the industry got through it. Um, this period has been obviously quite you know, astounding in terms of the huge impact that it has had, but um, 
it will get it, it, it will get back and they, they they're on its feet no question about it and for anyone who is um worried about whether they feel that aviation is actually got any future um it has it's just going to take a, a bit of time for it to get back on its feet um so i would definitely do not give up um any dreams that you have to work in the industry um so um keep an eye on uh, on what's happening uh, with Nova airlines so if they do have any opportunities coming up um i don't think there's any harm in just contacting them or even uh, people that you might know who work in airlines just to sort of get an idea of you know, what to expect and so forth um i think probably now is probably a good time to at least so get to do some just do the, some 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 prep work to see you know explore what positions there are that you'd like to you know to aim to do and um if you are thinking about starting to do a pilot training course i think now would probably be a good time to do it because the by the time that you have then completed your course you'll then start to see the industry you know, be getting you know, back on its feet um you know and and you know things will then uh, they kick off there from there um i have no regrets whatsoever about getting about coming in, into the industry um i was a bit reluctant at first because when i was 16 and i, I was sort of opinion that i should be that i should stay at sixth form you know, uh, college you know, school to uh, uh before i then start to think about what i do but you know my parents assisted and then there's a job here which you should go for so you'll apply for it um and i'm very glad that they did do that because um um when i think back now and i think well i've done all these um all these things and if i had not gone into the industry i would not have done them so um it's definitely worth you know a shot at um, going into and you'll enjoy it um whether it's just for a couple of years or maybe you know, 10 years or if it's your whole you new know, um life um enjoy it as much as possible i certainly have and um the only regrets i've got is that um where opportunities have come up in the past and I've um, declined them because I've always thought that things are okay where I am. But um, if you do get an opportunity to come up, then, you know, grab it and, uh, you know, make the most out of it. I think just to add what you said there, Phil, which is, which is correct. Like, you know, um, you know, the listeners, especially the younger ones as well, you know, mm. you do follow your dreams, you know, it will turn around, but just please do a bit of research on. Yeah what you're going to do because there's a lot of absolutely nonsense out there with regards to uh on social media i mean is that you know as phil has mentioned there do your research uh find true accurate information i know it's very difficult because even in the past i got caught out uh, a couple of times mm. during my pilot training where uh, two of the schools went uh, uh, flying training schools went into administration mm. and um I had done my research, but the, the issue then was there was still no protection in place where if something had happened, you didn't have a comeback. So, you know, yeah, research, research your, everything that's out there. And uh, based on that, then, you know, make, make your decisions then rather than um, listening to a lot of, a lot of information, which is out there in social media, which is not uh, 100% accurate. No, that is the thing. Uh, so always, if, if you, um, if you do, there's someone who, um, works in the, in the industry, then that's obviously a good starting place um, because they'll actually have they'll actually know what is actually going on. It's, it's interesting where I've spoken to people and 
um, who don't even work in the industry, but they think that they know it inside out. Yeah. But when it's through, actually, no, that's not actually how it happens. Um, so yeah, it's definitely worth making sure that you do make contact um, with um, you know with uh, the proper you know, people. Um, obviously, even like the the um, um, aviation publications, they are still quite good you know areas to do a bit of research on, just like backgrounds on how the industry works. Um, but I say yeah, trying to speak to people who actually do work in the industry does go you know, does help dramatically. I must say. So, Phil, tell us, where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, well, I'm, um, I've, I've actually I've just started actually to be on Instagram, uh, which um, you know, everyone's actually wondering why it's taken me so long to know, know to get on there, but, um, but I've just not had the opportunity to. Um, but um, I'm on Facebook, and um, uh, I'm also on uh, LinkedIn, um, and that's actually one platform which I do recommend um, for, you know, for the listeners who haven't done so already is to go onto LinkedIn and do a, your, your, a profile um, and start to build up connections. Um, it's surprising how many um, people you can then start to connect with or at network on LinkedIn to get some ideas of what's uh, happening. Um, Cause essentially LinkedIn is like your CV online in some ways you build it up, you know, your experiences or whatever. Um, so definitely recommend that. But I, I am I'm on I'm on there if people want to um, get in contact, um, as well as they as said uh, Facebook. And um, if I'm, I, on, I'm on your Instagram page here, Phil. Uh huh. Uh, oh no. I've got to pulling it up here. Just said I might have a little look. Um, embarrass <laughs> you. I think you're you're just one nice photograph of you here. You're jumping up in the air in front of Stonehenge. That's um, right. Yes. Oh, Kirk. Yes. Yeah. That was actually just uh, that's literally been last week actually. So um, yeah. And then uh, another one here in front of a ticket TS TSR two, the Beast, I think you called yes, it. Yes. Yeah, that's at, um, that was there, I was there last week, so I had a week's leave. So um, that that's the first time I actually seen the aircraft, and um, so I was, I was I was really happy to have uh, no, no, to be there that that day. And most importantly, you have a big bar of Talbot on your photograph. Yes, that was um, <laughs> yeah. There's a reason. There's a story for that, which I'll explain very quickly. Um, I turned, um, I actually, I um, became the big 4-0 uh, very recently. And, Congratulations. Um, yeah, well done. Thank you. Uh, I call it being 20 again, actually. And yeah. um, so, and um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Tobro, especially the white Tobro, because it was like gold dust years ago. You can only get it in the airport duty freeze, but it seems to be available a bit more now. But um, uh, 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 I've, a um, friend of mine, um, uh, he uh, decided that um, for a 40th birthday present, he'll get me a bar of Tobrone, but not just any old bar. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a four and a half kilogram new bar of Tobrone. And I thought, I need to take a picture of this to actually give some, to give you what, an idea of the scale of this bar. So, um, yeah. Is this the orange uh, twist bar, is it? Uh, no, this is this is just a standard um, milk chocolate uh, Toblerone bar. Uh, I have tried the orange twist and it is very good, um, but it's still not a patch on the white Toblerone. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, any listeners, if uh, you want to get in touch with Phil, uh, he's a he's a very um, uh, colourful and interesting uh, Instagram page here. Everything aviation, there's food. Everyone about Phil, as you mentioned, LinkedIn as well and Facebook, and uh, for myself um, and Aviation Zero. Thanks so much to uh, Phil Cam for chatting with me today on Aviation Night by Aviation Zero. Thanks so much, Phil. 
Thank you very much, David. Uh, pleasure to speak to you and um, wish everyone uh, happy flying in future.